John 17, 1-5 When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So I wonder how many prayers in your lifetime you have listened to. Would it be hundreds? Would it be thousands? Would it be tens of thousands of prayers in your lifetime that you have listened to? My guess is that you might not remember many of them. And, and even if you were memorized some words for prayers, mostly you're not always taking in all the, all the words of the prayers that are being said that you've heard. But listening to John 17 is different. Jesus has center stage, and he is praying. He's talking to his Father, and he's talking to the Heavenly Father of the disciples, and he's talking to our Heavenly Father. And there are times when, when there's something that you really want to hear. You've been here, where there's something you really want to hear, and yet like people are talking, or maybe the volume isn't up loud enough, and and you notice like people aren't paying attention and there's no captions to hear what's going on and you really want to listen. So you're like, shh, I don't want to hear this. I want to, I want to listen. And I don't mean to be smart, but whatever else is on your mind this morning, I think it can wait while you listen to a couple verses of Jesus' prayer. I believe so much that when a member of the Trinity talks to another member of the Trinity, It's worth us leaning in and our hearts being ready to listen and receive what's being said. So John 17 opens this way. When Jesus had spoken these words, and we've been walking through exactly the words that he had been speaking in, in John 13 through 16. The last bit, though, of John 16 was Jesus kind of declaring victory. Don't be afraid. Take courage. I've overcome the world. And that's pre-cross, and that's pre-resurrection, and that's pre-ascension. But Jesus knows, he knows where the road's taken, and he knows the end result. Don't be afraid. And it says he lifts up his eyes to heaven. It's a different posture of prayer than normally our posture of prayer is bowing our head and closing our eyes. He actually keeps eyes open and lifts them to heaven, and he prays. He says, Father, the hour has come, and an hour has arrived And in all reality, it's not like just a 60-minute window we're talking about. It's actually a whole weekend, like the moment has arrived. It's a culmination of what started in Bethlehem in some ways, where for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's a culmination of that. But actually, it's a culmination of God's plan forever. The hour has arrived. Other places in John, you read like, his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. Here, it's arrived. And so Jesus prays. And the prayer is pretty straightforward. It's really, really intense. And I think it will be good to spend a few weeks in this prayer to see a lot of the things we need to see. I think that'll be time really well spent. Jesus is praying. So what is his first request? You see it there in verse 1. He prays, glorify your son 
that the Son may glorify you. A similar prayer is repeated in verse 5. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. So our first stop really probably should be, what does it mean to glorify? Or what does glory mean? Because a lot of, a lot of John 17 is going to hinge on what that word means. Especially when we talk about the glory of God, do you know what that means? It definitely can sound like a church word, right? If you've been around church, you've heard about glory or God's glory. And that can be helpful that it's familiar, but in some ways it may become actually these words, we think we kind of already know what it means, but we don't know concrete, like exactly what's being talked about enough to be helpful. So if that's where you are, and maybe you're not, but if that's where you are, I think there are at least three words that help that could help you appreciate the dimensions of this word glory. If, if, if I get kind of thought about those three words, it would be nature, value, and display. Nature, value, and display. So can, can I just walk through that? So it's like the nature, something or someone significant, their nature, their character, and it's assigned a value. It's thought to be valuable and important, and then it's displayed. It could be seen. So Again, just so, I, I think it's so critical we understand this concept. So let me, let me give you an example. Imagine kind of the red carpet for a movie premiere or an awards presentation. So you, you've seen images, you've seen pictures of this. So kind of think of that nature value display. So the nature is there might be this person, this artist, this singer, this athlete who's accomplished something. They're kind of who's who and they're, they're someone to be recognized. And so that's their nature. And then the value comes along and that they're being recognized because somewhere, somehow in the world, someone decided this is really important and really valuable. We're going to esteem this highly. And then the display is people see it. It's magnified. It's glorified. Lots of cameras are rolling. It's documenting things. It's being broadcast. It's making memories. It's making moments. Nature, value, display. You could think even of like walking into an ancient building, an ancient chapel, and like there's the nature of it and the value of it and the display of it. Or you could think of a hall of fame or a museum or a sunrise or a sunset, even at a national park, and you, you think of how valuable it is and the display of it all. So keep those concepts in your mind and let's talk about the glory of God. What is his nature? The way we've talked about it in church for a long time is talked about God's attributes. I think there's actually a better word than attributes and that is when it comes to God, we better talk of his perfections, not merely his attributes. Because in everything he is and does, he is perfect. There's no even balance here as if he's kind of 50-50 and it all kind of balances each other out. No, no, he's perfect in everything. As a kid, you're told, like, it's really good to be well-rounded. You know, you, you, need, to, you need to do good in academics and uh, sports is great and music's great and maybe there's some service project you can be a part of and you need to learn how to talk and work with others and all, all these things and just kind of a well-rounded life. Well, God is, God is completely well-rounded in every single thing, 100%. He does well. And I want to walk through some of those perfections in a moment, but even now, maybe you begin to think of them. Maybe even now you begin to jot them down. What are some of the perfections I know that are, are characteristic of God? That's his nature. But remember, we said not only nature, but value. And value is that God is unique. There is nothing more valuable. And just even kind of reflecting on that this week, it took me back to decades ago, a chorus that we would sing, I, I think, I don't know whether it's written in the 70s or 80s, but it was, Lord, you are more precious than silver. 
Lord, you are more costly than gold. And the course would go, nothing I desire compares to you. Nothing else. You are supremely valuable. I didn't make that up. That's who he is. He's uh, supremely valuable. Crown him with many crowns because he is supremely valuable. So that's nature and that's value. And then there's display, like people seeing it and taking it in and enjoying it and celebrating it. It takes time to kind of bring all that in, take all that in. The pictures in the Old Testament of the glory of God filling the temple, like they, they saw something there and not even exactly sure what they saw, like a cloud or something, but they saw something. There was a display. We sang it a moment ago and I, I, I wonder if one of the best exercises you could do today is to just go back and watch the, the video of the first few songs and hear, come and behold him, the one and the only. Cry out before him. Just take a look at it. Only a holy God. Over the years, I, I don't know if I heard this. If I heard it, I don't remember the source, or maybe I pieced it together with different sources of definitions. But when I think of the glory of God, this is how I think about it. The infinite worth of God's perfections put on display. The infinite worth of all that makes God perfect, God's perfections, put on display. That's the glory of God. And the prayer of Jesus, and thanks for letting me like kind of take that detour because the prayer of Jesus is that this would happen with him and the Father. This is his first request. It to me parallels a lot with the Lord's prayer. Hallowed be your name. What is Jesus asking? Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. We need to understand glory as clearly as possible. If I could paraphrase the request this first request of Jesus' prayer, it would be something like this. Father, Father, choose the best way to put the infinite worth of my perfections on display for the world to see. And Father, choose the best way through me being glorified to put the infinite worth of your perfections on display. The infinite worth of the perfections of Father and Son, His love, his justice, his mercy, his patience, his knowing everything, his power to do anything, his holiness, his loyalty, his sovereignty. Find the best way for all of that to be put on display in this world of evil and sin, foolishness, and rebellion. And what, what follows is Jesus actually giving us a glimpse as to how the Father was going to answer that prayer. It's one thing to pray it. It's another thing to look at, like, how is this going to be answered? So hear the prayer of Jesus as he prays, like, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And, and listen to verse 2 here. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him, and this is eternal life, that, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we understand the word glory, or at least I think we have a a more concrete understanding of it, and we hear the request that Jesus is making, so how is this prayer going to be answered? How will the perfections of Jesus, how will the perfections of the Father be put on display? I think one way this prayer is answered is as Jesus gives eternal life and does whatever it takes to give eternal life. There's something about Jesus giving eternal life in these verses, in verse 2 and verse 3, that show this is the nature of God. These are his characteristics. This is, this is the value. This is his infinite worth so that you might see him. Jesus speaks. 
He speaks here of the Son having been given authority over all flesh. And if you're just reading, like, I don't, like, the brakes should slam on and go, okay, what a statement. Like, the keys of everything, all flesh, are totally in his hand. The keys that open and close the doors of heaven are in his hand. He has unlimited authority. Most of the biographies that you and I will read speak of someone with some measure of authority, some capacity to make decisions, authority over some measure of flesh. But, but we start rightly getting nervous when someone has authority over like all kinds of things. Disaster happens when someone has authorization to do whatever they want with no checks and no balances. That's scary, except here because Jesus is perfect. You know, the world doesn't always acknowledge that Jesus has authority. But that really doesn't matter in the end. And I don't say that in a cavalier way. This world and all the inhabitants of it is and will be forever under the authority of Jesus. All flesh, every race, every ethnicity, God has given Jesus authority over. The authority of Jesus isn't a fairy tale concept. It's someone made up somewhere. It plays out in human history. It plays out across all continents and nations. Over time, for eternity, he has all authority. And you take that in, and again, it should stop us in our tracks, but also it should, it should tell us something, how he exercises that authority. How he exercises that authority over all flesh is to give eternal life. What an amazing statement. You and I, because of our sin, we would not exercise our authority in that way. To give eternal life, living the fullest life forever. And I'm so grateful even as Don and Rob shared in Bite Size about just kind of the nature of eternal life. This is the nature of our Savior. He's going to use all the authority that he has to give and give and give and give and give. And then you ask, well, well, who are the recipients of this amazing gift? And it's actually said in John in different complementary ways. It's kind of the complement between how we experience it and God's ultimate plan. Because sometimes it's like this gift of eternal life comes to all who will believe. This is John 3.16, right? God loved the world in this way. He sent his one and only son that whoever would believe, all who would believe in him would have eternal life. That's who receives the gift. All who would believe. John 11 says something similar. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even though he were dead, he will live. And that life is eternal life. That's the, the life. All who believe in Jesus. So sometimes it's to all who will believe, but here it's a little bit different, isn't it? That eternal life is given to all who have been given to Jesus from the Father. It reminds us that the Father isn't somewhere off in you know, 15 galaxies away, idly by, you know, watching, not doing anything. There's a plan, and the Father sets his love on human beings and gives them to the Son, and the Son gives them eternal life. That's why in some ways you could talk about it being very exclusive. Not everybody gets eternal life. In some ways it's so inclusive because every time I read words like this, the word all keeps coming up again and again. All, all, all who will be, all who will believe. Just so we don't get off track on exactly what eternal life is, Jesus helps and even kind of inserts in verse 3, this is eternal life. What is eternal life? That they know you. Again, he's praying, but he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and 
that they know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus is even speaking of himself in the third person. I think just so we as his disciples who aren't always so quick to understand all that he's teaching, make sure we process exactly what eternal life is. Jesus will give us the gift of knowing in a personal relationship the Father. There's not some secret password he's going to tell us, no kind of secret initiation ritual. It's a gift. And the gift is knowing God. All those attributes of God that Rob and Donna just spoke about. But lots of people think they know God, think they know the Father. It's not enough to just kind of think you know God. Jesus also connects it. Like, to know God means you also know the Son. To, to, to really know the Father means you know the Son as well, because He is the one who is reconciling the world to God. He is the one who has revealed the Father in flesh. So Jesus also gives us the gift of knowing Him. He's not going to keep himself secluded and shrouded in mystery, and we just have to wonder and guess. I wonder what Jesus is like. He's going to say, here is exactly what I'm like. What a gift to us. What a gift to know. I thought about it this week. Our Savior has relationships, has made himself known to people all over this world, people that are thousands of miles away. Even as I'm speaking, they have a relationship with the same Jesus. Think about what those disciples, first disciples had seen, what it meant for them to actually know Jesus. What they would have known is, yeah, he clearly is a man. He got hungry. He got tired. He cried. He ate. He rode on boats. He went to Jerusalem. He grew up. People watched it. He's clearly a man, but he is so much more than just a man. He said and did things that were more even in this passage. In verse 5, he's talking about receiving glory and receiving glory like he had before the world existed. Like, yeah, before all this world was here, I mean, it's like you go to, you, you talk to someone who's kind of an old timer in a per, particular area, and they say, I remember when that was fields, and there wasn't that building, and that wasn't constructed, and all this was, I remember when nothing was here, and Jesus is saying, yeah, before, like, even the world was here, I existed, maybe glorified in that way. What this means is to know Jesus means to know he is the God-man. And only he could be our mediator to the Father, bringing us together, giving us, giving us peace and hope and refuge. So again, how, how will God the Father answer this prayer of Jesus? He will answer it as Jesus gives eternal life. But keep reading. Because he says, I, Jesus Christ whom you sent in verse 3. In verse 4, he, he connects something else. He says, I've glorified you. Kind of speaking in past tense, although his life is not... Been, been totally given yet. He can speak of it kind of it's all the same with Jesus. So he's bringing us into like his, his full life in ministry, even his death and resurrection, I believe. He says, I've accomplished. It's the same word when Jesus is going to say on the cross, it is finished. I've finished. I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So the prayer of Jesus is answered as Jesus finishes the work he was sent to accomplish. Father, choose the best way to put the infinite worth of my perfections on display. And it's seen in the work that Jesus is doing. It's seen in the work that he came to do, which definitely involved the life that he lived. He did God's will perfectly. He loved people completely. In the end, he was the innocent man, unjustly brought to trial, arrested, accused. But also, also that work of Jesus, the work that he was given to do, given to accomplish, I think is primarily seen on the cross and through the resurrection. I love how one writer, and this is a, a, a paragraph here, so stick with me. I, I love how one writer has recreated this prayer. So the hour has come. Jesus says, glorify your son. 
This is the way one writer says, Father, please help me to say and do the right things this decisive weekend. Give me the strength and the wisdom to go through the trials and cross that's just ahead so that I can make a full and clean atonement for the whole world's sins as you and I so deeply want. And then especially, Father, please raise me up again after I'm put to death in order to conquer death and to show the world decisively and comfortingly that death has, in fact, and not just in myth, been conquered in history. I want this weekend to be everything you and I have hoped for it would be for the world, for the church, and the bearer of our message to the world. Jesus praying to the Father. It reminds me when we come to the cross, and I, and I know we, we, we probably have crosses hanging up in our house or we wear it around our neck or we have pictures. And, but as we approach that cross, it's holy ground, is it not? The answer to this prayer, amazingly enough, is going to be just the awful scourge of the cross. The infinite worth of God's perfections. I would not have come up with this plan. But the infinite worth of God's perfections are going to be put on display as Jesus hangs on a cross. And on that cross, we're going to see, I want to know what God is like. God is love. And he's love for even sinners, even enemies. And now it's on display. You watch it. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. God is perfectly just. No sin is excused. Everyone will face the the judgment. Every sin will face the judgment of God. And all that's now on display as Jesus takes that wrath and judgment on himself. God is merciful. He's perfectly merciful, isn't he? Well, look on the cross. There he is merciful with even the doubters and the mockers. It's on complete display. God is so patient with the weak and the confused. And there it is on the cross. Like, there's the picture. There's the picture. Look at that picture. Do you see just our eyes are made to like, we got to go back again and again to the cross. God is all-knowing. All this was foreknown since the foundation of the world. And the fact that God knew all of it, that's right on display too. Don't miss that. God is holy. Sin means we are under a curse by God for our sin. And that curse has to be enacted. It's put on display, isn't it? God is holy. He can't tolerate sin. God is all-powerful. So at the cross, we're looking at not someone like just a series of unfortunate events and someone took Jesus' life. He said, no, no, that's not the way it went down. I give my life. It wasn't taken. I gave it. I gave it. I laid it down. That's displayed on the cross. On the cross is the fact that God is sovereign. This is a whole divine plan that just blows our mind. As a matter of fact, Paul's going to say it's foolishness. It's it's just silliness. It's like a, a stumbling block. Like, are you serious? This is God on display? I think I want a different kind of God. That's the way the world might look at this. But we who are being saved, we say, this is, this is it. This is what I give my life for. And God is so loyal, so loyal to his people that he will do whatever it takes for the good of his people. And that's why he hangs on the cross and says, it is finished. That's why our focus can't drift. That's why the cross stays front and center. The answer to Jesus' prayer is the cross. So that's why when I survey the wondrous cross, we just keep singing it. That's why I will cling to the old rugged cross. We keep singing it. Because the infinite worth of God's perfections are put on display there. 
it's hard for me to find words that just like easily and neatly summarize what I hear and what I witness in this chapter. But I do, I, can I just leave you with, I think, three statements? And they're not profound, but it is what the Lord, I feel like, has shown me kind of how Jesus has met me in this passage. First of all, I, Christians see glory in the relationship of the Father and the Son. Christians just see that. We see something glorious. I know the world gets confused by it. We see something glorious in the relationship of the, the Father and Son. We see something more about God because we know we've been included in that plan. We've been brought into that. Their plan of love included us, shows something to us of the perfections of God when we know the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. And Christians not only see glory in the relationship between Father and Son, Christians see glory in the cross. We see glory in the cross because it's right there that God's perfections, was, that they were put on display for us to see. Christians see God's glory, though, also as our ultimate purpose. And I use the word carefully, ultimate. There is no higher purpose. Our lives are meant, my life is meant to put the infinite worth of God's perfections on display. You have a mission, I have a mission. All of creation has a mission, and that is to say, this is what God is like. That is your spiritual DNA, but I want to do a temperature check. Okay, I had a few of those this week, more than I care to have. But actually, I want to do a spiritual temperature check. And I want to ask you how much of your life is consumed with what we've talked about and thought about today. Because I think for many of us, things are going to be pretty consumed with selfish things. Or our world's going to be pretty consumed with things going on around us. And so it's going to be corrective to hear the words of Jesus say, we ought to center on this as our first prayer. So in this life, in this next week, month, you're going to make decisions. You're going to act on priorities. You're going to create things, or you're going to avoid decisions, and you're going to be lazy, or you're going to, like, consume things. And in all of that, is this going to be the driving focus of your life? Will these realities consume you? Are you going to be living for God's glory? And here's the question for you and me. Am I going to be living my life in such a way that puts the infinite worth of God's perfections on display? 1 Corinthians 10.31, let me just end with this. Whether you eat, whether you drink, or whatever you do, do all to put the infinite worth of God's perfections on display. Oh, Father, this would be overwhelming if it weren't for your Spirit giving us the power to do just that. This would be overwhelming if it, was, if it wasn't for the gratitude we have that you told us we could do this. You invited us into this. You designed us with this purpose. You've empowered us to do this. So, Lord, we would just be flat on our face with no hope of ever doing this except for the fact that in your good purposes, you took sinners and rebels and you brought us to the cross and you made us look at it and, and our lives have been changed. And now this just fuels us. So now we can walk in good works that you've prepared for us to walk in. So Lord, do deep work by this prayer of Jesus. And I pray that his vision of being glorified and his vision of you being glorified, oh, I pray it would happen at Ogletown Baptist Church. 
We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.